Miss the show? No worries. We've got you covered on our podcast, On Point Tonight. So some see this pandemic as an opportunity to remake Canada. That would be our prime minister. Well, then why aren't we using it to overhaul a very broken education system in Ontario? We will have that conversation. Why is the Canadian government trying to keep the FBI from getting evidence and access to a Montreal company that's alleged to have direct ties to China? We will talk to our investigative team, Sam Cooper, on that story. And we'll talk about a lost ring, the Hollywood Connection, and a Canadian company that found it, and apparently thousands of others. Who knew ring finding was even an industry? But it is. And we will talk about that. Let's get going. What's your point? You just don't ever get to point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. There is no agenda. I'm the last guy in the world that would put up with that. It just, it just wouldn't happen under my watch. I'm, I'm here to protect the people of Ontario, keep them safe. I'm going to protect your families. I'm going to protect your kids at all cost, at all cost. I don't care what it costs to protect the people of this province. I will, I'll break down a brick wall for anyone in this province to protect them. And that's what we're going to continue doing. Well, there may not be a hidden agenda, but there is growing anger, mistrust, and even more people who no longer care to do their part, proving we're not in this together. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, October 13th, the day where everything you eat for dinner will be leftovers mushed together because mashed potatoes can be mixed with anything, everything and anything, literally. I'm not sure other than sweets, which you can't mix it with. So I hope you uh, had a couple of good days off, a chance to sit back, uh, had a chance to gather and eat something, um, find something to give thanks for. I think it was a tough year. A lot of people didn't have a lot to celebrate. A lot of folks are struggling because of the shutdowns that uh, they have no control over. And for a lot of them, you know, Friday's shutdown meant game over. And of course, we were asked, you know, do your part, hunker down, keep your gatherings small. We didn't want this weekend to become a big super spread event, but then, you know, you look at the and feel the fatigue of this virus and it's exhausting. It is totally exhausting. It's like Groundhog Day, like the horror version, you know, and um, a lot of folks, I think, ignored what was being asked. I know uh, I know quite a few people who either went to visit parents or whose kids came home from school. You know, you look on the Facebook and there were pictures all over of people, you know, of people having parties or, you know, gatherings packed at the table, you know, people that, you know, are not in their immediate circle, but doing the things that we were asked not to do. And they'll justify it. Everyone can justify it because we all have different needs and wants and we all have different uh, levels of importance. Those are to us. You know, it's tough for a parent and their kids to be separated for long periods of time. You know, for a lot of young people who are uh, off to college for the first time, they're homesick. And this is the weekend they come home to get their clean, you know, clean clothes and and see mom and dad. You know, tell them that's not a priority. Tell them to give that up. There are a lot of people that just uh, can find or say, look, it's important to me, so I'm going to do it. So I think there was a lot more visiting that's going to be admitted. And um, the numbers, I guess, we'll have to look at in a couple of weeks that we'll either confirm it or not. And then everyone will just either excuse it or uh, justify it because, hey, we're not in this together. 
And I don't know about you, but I find like a lot of people just make their own little rules. And right or wrong, you know, we've been told, use your common sense. And so that's what a lot of people people are doing. Uh, we stayed home. We did not go to Hamilton this year. It was just uh, my husband and our son and the dog and the fish. We stayed close to home. And um, and I know it was hard for people to kind of give up their, their usual routines. But the reality is folks are tired of this virus. I mean, it's very inconvenient. And we're also not as scared of, of COVID as we were before. And we don't trust what we're hearing you know, from these quote unquote experts. And that's because frankly, they keep changing their tune. And uh, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but certainly the the narrative's changing, a growing number of doctors starting to say, hey, the, the lockdowns are doing more damage than good. Over the weekend, even the WHO seems to say, hey, I mean, don't don't get me wrong. They don't get anything right. But they they have they, they themselves have, have turned against the lockdowns because what do you know? Now they've discovered that lockdowns hurt people. They make people poorer. They make societies poorer. And I don't envy the premier for making these decisions because it is very clear he is damned if he does. And as he said today, damned if he doesn't. So many armchair quarterbacks that uh, can sit back and haven't walked a mile in our shoes. And it's easy to say could have, should have. I, you, do you know what happened? I have some people saying you could have done it a few days earlier. I have the other group that you're talking about. You should have never done it. You should just open up everything and everyone go hog wild. And I, I have to get the ship down the middle of the, the lane there. But sadly, you know, striking a balance, you know, even if you pick the right lane means hundreds of thousands lose everything. And when you look at the numbers today, 240,000 people have already applied for the new government help, which was announced um, Friday, but opened up on holiday Monday, which paints a pretty startling picture of what people are up against. But then you look and you say, well, without proper contact tracing from Toronto Health, and we've got incomplete data because there's over 40 hospitals in the GTA refusing to report cases, it's hard to see this as data-driven decision-making, which is why less folks are buying in. I mean, maybe the partial shutdowns will help. Epidemiologists seem to think it will, but it comes at such a huge cost. And we won't know if it's the right call until it's too late. But, you know, it, it's very clear that no matter what rules you put in place, they're going to be skirted. Because there are a lot of people who don't care. They do not care who gets infected. They do not care who gets hurt by their actions. They don't believe COVID's a thing. You know, take the anti-maskers. They only see this as one issue, that it's an attack on their freedoms. I mean, there are college kids who feel fully justified that they want the college experience. So if they want to have a party, they're going to have a party. And so there are many people who will never see the bigger picture of COVID. There are many people who won't shrug at all if the local pub on their street closes, which is unfortunate. It's sad. So their minds won't be changed. You know, not, not unless, of course, COVID infects them or some part of their life. That's generally how it works. It's like, oh, now I understand. But, you know, we're not going to enforce our way out of this, which is uh, why I found it interesting today, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney saying, you know, we're not going to do shutdowns or ticket rule breakers because at the end of the day, we've got to look at the big picture. 
Micromanaging people's lives, many of those jurisdictions have seen much higher levels of infections and fatalities. Jurisdictions have seen enforcement and lockdowns and aggressive enforcement and micromanaging people's lives. Many of those jurisdictions have seen much higher levels of infections and fatalities than Alberta has. And I want, as, as, as much as humanly possible, us to maintain our approach, which is, which is focused on people exercising personal responsibility. Because, as Dr. Hinshaw has pointed out, and, and, and as have I, for every public health restriction, there are negative and sometimes devastating uh, broader social, economic, and health consequences. There you go. It's right. It's true. Can, can everyone just do, do their part? Like, you know, to the anti-masker. You're not being asked to wear your mask 24 hours a day or all the time outside. Just do your part. Wear it when you go into a store. Wear it so that the restaurant can stay open a little longer. I mean, just do your basics. If everyone just did the basics, we'd be a lot further ahead. Never mind the levels of government. You know, they 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 will screw this up no matter what. They know how to do that. They're very good at that. But, you know, we are, as people, uh, you know, just act like responsible grown-ups and do your part. Because Premier Ford and Trudeau, you know, Trudeau, they can throw as much money at this thing as they want, but the damage of the shutdowns is done. It is done. And for most, the aid is way too late. I mean, the commercial rent assistance program that's now getting the overhaul, that that thing is months too late. The businesses that couldn't qualify for it, they're gone. And you wonder, what the hell were the Trudeau government doing all these months to fix it? Why didn't they fix it? They had months to do it. You know, and now here we are telling businesses, you're going to close down again, but don't worry, help's on the way. Well, no, it's not. It never arrives or it's just too late, kind of like the rapid testing. We could have avoided a lot of what we're looking at right now. We could have, you know, eased anxiety over community spread. We could have eased anxiety over sending kids back to school. We could have avoided a lot of these losses and surging cases. Had the Trudeau government just delivered on the promise back in March, it was their priority. They said it. Rapid testing is our number one priority. Because we had seen Taiwan use it and have great success. Remember, they only had seven deaths and they're right next door to China. Everyone knew rapid testing was key. And where is it now? That's my clock. It's not here. It's not going to be here for weeks. It'll be here after the bloody pandemic. Won't it be great in 2022 when we call get rapid tested? I mean, it's crazy. All of this stuff that we could have had in place for the second wave won't be here for weeks. It's the old, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda of a very predictable thing we saw coming and we're going to argue about it for years because there's so much blame to go around but sadly it's the everyday people the gym owner the restaurant owner the small business owner who are paying the price for it right now and they shouldn't have to well as a community spread of covid continues to surge and further threaten schools with shutdown i and i, I think a lot of other people parents certainly truly hope this doesn't happen uh, because what that would mean is a return to the disaster many of us experienced in the spring which was that exhausted parents were thrown into teacher roles and a patchwork plan that you know when you look at it seven months later it's not all that much better and it is not how we should be or expected to deliver our education and like so many other things COVID has exposed the many failures of public institutions you know especially the very clunky slow and heavily bureaucratic areas of health and education. Uh, and if you have the money to go private, 
you've been spared from a lot of this pain. But for most, especially working parents, we sadly only have one choice, and that is the public system. And these days, I think it is very clear that those in charge are making this up as they go along. But worse, kids have been thrown into a system of experimental chaos of this distanced learning and learning at a distance that they are going to, I think, pay for one day in the not-so-long future. Paul Bennett is director of Schoolhouse Institute and has authored the book State of the System, a reality check on Canada's schools. Good to have you, Paul. Very pleased to be back with you, Alex. A timely book um, because, you know, in in part you write, um, you know, about this whole, you know, very bureaucratic uh, system that we have. It's very centralized. And I think the pandemic, as you rightly point out, has just exposed how dysfunctional it is and, and, and can't roll with the punches. Yes, the book is really a timely reminder of what's happened to our school system. It's become increasingly bureaucratic, centralized, top down and ill-equipped to deal with shocks like the global pandemic. And what we've learned is that um, it just wasn't resilient, wasn't agile, and couldn't react to the changes, particularly when they were changes thrust upon everyone by a global pandemic and decisions that are essentially being made by public health authorities. School systems generally uh, are autonomous, and they act as if they're autonomous and silos. And in this case, they were thrust into a situation where they were kind of at the mercy of other public bodies, and they just um, didn't handle the whole crisis very well. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that the schools will stay open. I mean, I've seen a big turnaround in my own little guy, just a, a total uh, transformation of excitement. But he and, and several others are behind and um, they have to recover a whole kind of half year of learning that they haven't gotten. And uh, that goes for all the kids. And here they are thrown into a system that still very much is unstable um, and, and chaotic because it's kind of an experiment with how we're educating kids in this you know, COVID reality. It began with the great uh, experiment of distance emergency learning. It developed into a six-month hiatus from regular school. The beginning of school was a rocky start, particularly in the greater Toronto area, and I think you've aptly described the situation. School systems in the greater Toronto area are in various stages of disarray, depending on the incidence of the COVID virus and the threat to um, health and safety of children. But there's also another issue at play, and that is some of the policy decisions that were made opened the door to parental choice, uh, creating more instability than you find in some of the other school systems across the country. Right. But it's, you know, it's hard to blame parents who kind of went off and went rogue because there's very little choice. You either pay 40 grand for a very expensive private school if you can afford something, you know, um, you know, in the mid range, 15, 20,000, still very expensive for most people. Then you're almost stuck um, reliant on the public system. Trust me, I, it, uh, you know, it's something I think about all the time, because if I had more choice, I would not 
have my child in a in a public system because frankly um, I don't think the education is where it needs to be it's not giving the kids the skills that they need for when they graduate and I think it's gotten far too ideological but we have what we have and I think what's clear is you know we still have a system very much in flux you've got kids that are going in and out of class some are going online then they're coming in um, and it seems and I know they're doing their best but teachers are more focused on having to deal with uh, you know the rules and the COVID, um, you know, rules of keeping desks separated than necessarily the day-to-day lessons of teaching kids? Well, everyone's been dealt a very difficult hand. But in the Toronto District School Board, let's just take why they're in such chaos. First of all, there was a change in leadership. The director, John Malloy, announced Mm -hmm. in the middle of the crisis that he was leaving. So there's been no consistency in steering a ship, and that's an ocean liner, the mm-hmm. Toronto District School Board, the biggest school board in Canada, the fourth largest in North America, which was essentially left leaderless. The second issue is how much choice do you want to allow in the elementary division? If you look at Denmark, uh, British Columbia, and Quebec, they really did insist that all elementary students stay in school and try to service them in in-person schooling. So, so uh, Ontario went in a direction which created some instability. And the question, of course, for elementary students is, is are they ever going to be that successful in online environments? And thirdly, I think the problem is there were just too many switches and reorganizations. Um, What my book shows is this centralized, bureaucratic school system uh, thrives on order, thrives on regularity, repetition, And uh, we've had none of those things over the past seven months. So um, everyone's been destabilized, and Mm -hmm. we've got a serious issue on our hands. My book does go into, uh, you know, how we can start to turn it around. And um, I think consistency is important now. Uh, You see what what happened, say, in, in Denmark. They just decided that all children in the elementary grades were going to be going back, and they did it in April. And they're going to be in school and they're going to be taught. And the others will be in various forms of hybrid learning. Um, So did New Brunswick. New Brunswick Mm -hmm. developed that model. In Nova Scotia, where the the, uh, rates of uh, infection were so low, everyone is still in school and there's no movement. But everyone else has got various stages of uh, changes. Now, one of the things that I think is a, a worrisome trend is you probably noticed that they're, they're taking 500 teachers out of regular classes in Toronto, moving them to online. That's a recipe for making it more centralized in terms of delivery. So more decisions are going to be made at the center than in the schools. And my whole book argues that what's gone wrong is we've lost sight of how important it is, uh, that relationship between teachers and students yeah. and parents And we need to go back to a system where there is more autonomy at the school level, because I think we're going to have this happen again, and you're going to have to have um, more autonomous principals, teachers, and and parents who uh, can function almost without this superstructure. They're not going to have it. And I I think we should be willing to look at school-based governance and other changes that might make it a more effective, responsive, and agile system. Now, this is a long way off because we're in the middle of a crisis, and my book has really taken a huge bite off the uh, the agenda. 
And let's just take it in smaller bites. How do we work our way out of this crisis? And, and in doing so, how do we ensure that the system is better prepared for uh, continuing shocks like this? Yeah, well, the Prime Minister sees uh, this as an opportunity to remake Canada. I certainly hope that uh, people in the province of Ontario, certainly in Toronto, see this as an opportunity to break open a school system, I think, that is falling short and not delivering on what it should. Paul, I appreciate your time on this. Thank you very much. Uh, sometime we'll go into some of my detailed prescriptions, which, of which there are four or five, of what I think is the way forward in the future. I think parents would uh, actually like to hear about those, so for sure we'll talk about that. Uh, the book is called State of the System, Check on Canada's Schools. It's written by Paul Bennett and, of course, available now for sale. And it's uh, worth the conversation because I don't think parents are getting what they need, and I certainly know that the kids have been shortchanged, and they will inevitably pay for it down the road. Why is the Canadian government protecting a Montreal tech company linked to China? Well, according to our global investigative team, uh, the Trudeau government is protecting details of an RCMP raid that involves a McGill professor who is wanted by the FBI for apparently millions in alleged money laundering and providing military technology to Canada. And we don't have a lot of details, but what our global news team dug up is that this professor worked with a number of Canadian government agencies, including our space agency and Canada's military. And while this man hasn't been charged here, the FBI alleged he sent circuits for missile guidance and other technology that China's military couldn't buy legally. But court documents revealed disclosing any information on this could harm Canada's national security and international relations, or maybe it will just prove severely embarrassing. Stuart Green worked on this story, as well as Sam Cooper did this together in a joint investigation. And Sam Cooper joins me now. Good to have you, Sam. Hi, Alex. All right. So the company name is JYS Technology. It was uh, started up back in 2007, and they specialize in electronic research and development. And, you know, it's amazing. They've worked with the Canadian government for 13 years. They've had access to things like national defense and military. When did this get on the radar of the United States and why hasn't it been on the radar of Canada? Well, uh, it, it's an extremely complex alleged international scheme uh, that the U.S. government says that this uh, former McGill professor, his brother, an academic in California, and a number of uh, co-defendants worldwide were allegedly involved in. Uh, you know, the, the, the allegations are that this scheme ran from 2006 until 2016 when investigations start to bite down on the, the alleged conspirators. Very briefly, yes, we're talking about uh, allegedly millions flowing into Canada and the United States through a, a British Virgin Islands shell company, a Hong Kong bank account, various actors overseas, all allegedly to facilitate this, uh, this flow of uh, military application technology back to a factory in China. The cause or the reason for the conspiracy uh, documents say uh, that uh, China's national security apparently de depended on them acquiring this technology that they, they were blocked from accessing from countries such as the United States and France. So uh, why is it only on the radar now? Well, the Canadian government, that is the RCMP, was asked by the FBI to do this raid in the Montreal area in 2018. The greater context here is the U.S. government is cracking down uh, very uh, severely on what they say is an incredibly widespread 
problem of uh, academics looting secrets from U.S. Uh, universities and really around the world. Canada doesn't have the law enforcement capacity to tackle it. And, uh, you know, that's why it appears there are no charges in this case in Canada. Let's not forget to mention the professor, uh, Mr. Xi, uh, claims complete innocence. He denies the allegations. But the United States has already convicted his brother mm-hmm. in California on 18 charges. And so what we're left here is, uh, you're right, we're left with a battle for confidence confidential documents seized in this raid in Montreal. For some reason, Canada's government doesn't want uh, this information out. You know, could it be related to uh, this professor's work for Canada's Space Agency or National Research Council? Uh, that would, that, I think there's enough information to suggest it's something related to that, that kind of activity. All right. But as a Five Eye partner, do we have any kind of obligation to hand over um, such issues? You know, if it comes to national security um, and the United States is claiming that it's a threat, you know, if the allegation is that this professor was uh, somehow getting technology to China, that would somehow put uh, the United States um, in national security um, at risk. Do we not have an obligation uh, as part of a a Five Eye, uh, you know, our duties to, to help them? Well, there's there are there's information here that we know, and there's information that we don't know. We know a great deal about the specifics that the U.S. government alleges, and that is this international scheme where you have apparently evidently have actors related to uh, China's military industrial complex, if you want to call it that. You have actors in Canada and the United States, mm-hmm. and you have uh, missile guidance technology flowing from the U.S. up into Canada and over to China. So any reasonable person looks at that and says, not only is it Canada's national security, it's the world's national security at stake. Why uh, we know that uh, the U.S. is seeking the extradition of Mr. Xi from Montreal McGill University, that is a former professor. We know that he claims his innocence. We don't know the status of that uh, extradition. Uh, we're not, I can't call it a battle at this stage. So there's a lot that we don't know. But uh, I, I would, if you're saying that Canada's security is aligned with U.S. security and FBI investigations, I, I think uh, you know it, it's that that appears to be the case, and yet we don't quite know what what kind of secrets Canada's government is uh, trying to hold on to and why. So that's an unknown. Right. And could this be a a situation of uh, once bitten, twice shy, given the uh, fallout of the Meng Wanzhou situation? Uh, Is there a a concern maybe here that if this person is turned over or we cooperate with the United States, there will be some kind of retaliation again? That's an excellent question. I mean, there's there's such complexity in geopolitics going on at this level. But absolutely, we'd be we'd be foolish not to say there's a high profile extradition case battle going on right now that uh, some would say could have uh, connections to China's uh, military or intelligence apparatus. And look, this case, we're talking about secrets to the United States, secrets potentially uh, Canada's military or space agency. And uh, we, we, we just can't say why Canada's government wants to protect them. Look, uh, there may be a very good explanation. Maybe they're aligned with the United States on, on this application. We just don't have clarity on that. But what we can say is that the United States is cracking, on, cracking down on a, a – look, there's – uh, a counterintelligence investigation into Chinese espionage every 11 hours mm. from the FBI. Yeah. 
What else do we know? We know, according to intelligence, Canada has a, the same problem or worse, as does Australia. And we know Canada, the RCMP, doesn't have the capacity to crack down. So is there some, you know, something happening up high in Ottawa that uh, wants to uh, lit on this information? We can't say yet, but we can say, I believe, that the problem in Canada is, is quite large. Right. And certainly it took uh, you and Stuart uh, digging this up for us to even know about this. God help us uh, what we don't know on other matters. But the court has yet to reveal its decision on this particular matter. So we'll get that ruling. Will then um, we be able to get more? Is that when we will be able to possibly get records unsealed and such? In my experience, the, the, the clarity and the visibility that we will get on the allegations in Montreal will come from the United States court system. Of course. Uh, uh, you know, we've talked, uh, Alex, about uh, my investigations mm-hmm. into what happened at Nortel. I can tell you that there mm-hmm. are strong, you know, I, could, I have records that suggest bugging, large-scale uh, espionage occurred in a Nortel facility. And yet some of that disclosure I'm looking for uh, through access to information law is definitely blocked. So I, I do believe that, uh, put it this way, uh, we can expect more extradition requests from the United States from uh, uh, researchers in Canada, I believe. If this kind of international conspiracy is going on, we can't expect the RCMP to initiate this, these investigations, according to my information. Yeah, well, good thing we have you to do it for them then. Uh, Sam, uh, great work. Very complex story is, uh, is, is putting it mildly, so I appreciate you joining us to explain it. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. That's Sam Cooper. If you're not following him, Scooper Cooper. That's his uh, Twitter handle, and uh, he gets the goods on everything. And so we'll stay tuned to this and see what the Americans tell us, because Lord knows it will not be upfront from the Canadian side of things. Well, the relief you hear in that is uh, actor John Cryer. You might remember him from Two and a Half Men or uh, I Remember Him in Pretty in Pink. I'm dating myself. But he's out in uh, Vancouver right now uh, filming. And on Friday, he lost his wedding ring. It slipped off his finger as he pulled his hand from his pocket. He was walking in the rain along the seawall, along the water there. And then he heard this little drop, a bounce, and then silence. And naturally, it was night and he couldn't find it anywhere. And so he thought, you know, maybe it went in the water. But he tried listing it on the lost and found on Craigslist, and that's when he saw an ad for a metal detection service called Ring Finders. So, you know, hey, calls them up, and three minutes into the search, the ring and his marriage are found. Chris Turner of Ring Finders joining us here. And Chris, uh, you're out in Vancouver, but you found the ring, and um, you gave Mr. Cryer only a 5% chance of recovery, but you managed to do it. And that's not always the case. It's not, and it, it surprised me because when you look at the the area how it could have been in, uh, it was a 95% chance somebody would have already seen it, picked it up, and it would have been gone uh, or over the edge into the water, which I was prepared to come back and get a wetsuit and just work around the edge of the seawall. And so his reaction, I think, is probably like most who lose their wedding ring? It is. It's, it's no different. I mean, there's love so much love attached to these rings and uh there's amazing stories attached to these rings and all these stories end when they're lost and you know before this directory existed i I wonder how many people have walked away from their story and i'm so um honored to be able to help people and, and help continue that story 
and you guys have, I mean, your service is, uh, is Canadian wide, um, recovered 7,200, you know, jewelry type objects, 8 million in, in jewelry returned. That, that's nothing to sneeze at. I had no idea the industry was that even, ex- I didn't even know it existed. It's good to know, but I didn't know it was that, um, you know, had collected that much. It's, it's, a it's a niche market. Uh, you don't know about us until you meet us. And, Internet has helped a lot with uh, directing people to us. Uh, it needs to be a household name. It really does because there are so many people like John that lose their rings, come back, do the best they can, look around and walk away. And there goes the story. So uh, I'm very proud of my directory. It's, it's a global directory. We have 22 countries. We're heavy based in the United States and Canada. Um, we've returned over 7,200 lost rings. And I have close to 500 members exactly like me doing the same thing. And we all work on a reward basis. I can't imagine that John Cryer is, uh, I mean, I, I would have to think that he's helped make this then a household name because, of course, he tweets it out. And then everyone says, wow, let's call this guy. Yes. Yeah, that was, a, that was an incredibly kind thing of him to do. He's, you know, he's the type of guy that when you watch him on TV, I, I really liked his character on Two and a Half Men. And. You know, you look at this guy, and he's what you would expect him to be. He's just a wonderful human being and very kind. So, uh, you know, the pressure was on. When I when I saw who it was, it's like, oh, boy. So uh, the pressure was on me. I went in there with little hope. But what I do for a lot of people, I listen to their stories. If there's a sliver of a chance, I will go and search. And, like, you know, John's situation I figured about a 5% chance we'd find it, and we found it. So it was worth going and looking for and just to see the smile. But it's not its not a, a sure thing when you show up. I mean, in, in his case, you gave him only a 5% chance of recovery. I mean, it could have bounced easily the other way into the water, but this just ended up landing in a place where you could detect it. But that's not generally uh, a given. No, it's not. No, it's, it's called the gods are on your side because it really – he was walking very close to the edge uh, by the railing, by the sea, by the water. It could have come off. It could have bounced the opposite direction, or it could have just laid flat out in the concrete. And we're talking the grass. It, it separates the pathway. So you have a bike path and a walking path. So there's a three-foot-wide section of grass that runs up the middle of the path. So his chances, again, were, you know what? We were probably just meant to meet uh, <laughs> because... It was such a lucky recovery. I had been lucky in my day. This one, I, I put it right up there as being extremely lucky. Yeah, and and lucky for John because you know he's separated from his wife right now due to COVID. He's you know they're not allowed to visit. So, you know, a story saying, "Dear, I lost my wedding ring," probably wouldn't go over well. But it wouldn't go over well for most because you you automatically well, why was your ring off? I mean, well, because crap happens. But um, I have to think that um, it's not always a happy story. But in this case, you did get a happy story. But it really. <laughs> It really, at the end of the day, can be a, a, a marriage saver. But is, is are rings the only thing you, you go after? No, no. We'll go after cell phone, keys, uh, buried treasure, hidden loot. Uh, I had a member in Washington, D.C. find 61-ounce gold cigarettes that were buried by this man's father for over 30 years, and he was able to find them and return them back to the family. I have a, a member in Florida who found... Uh, 10,000 silver, mercury, and Roosevelt dimes, uh, 750 walking half liberties, and uh, 100-ounce bars of silver that, you know, the insurance company called to have him look for. 
we'll go for most anything that we can find with our metal detectors. And I've got a wonderful group of members that are, are as excited as I am. And you can't, I, I tell everybody this, I have the best job in the world. I get to make people smile. And once you make a recovery and once you see how it affects somebody's life, there's nothing better. I, I play professional soccer. I, I dabbled. I tried a little bit of acting. Um, I've never had a better job in my life than I have now. I, I wish it was full time. I guarantee you, if there, if the Ring Finders was a household name, I would be nonstop with calls every day. Well, you you might might be now. I mean, careful what you ask for. But nonetheless, you do have a job that brings a lot of good news to, to people and uh, probably has very happy stories and, and never, never not a dull story, um, you know, in your world. So there's that. It's fun. It, it's fun. Uh, you know, we, we get calls for all kinds of searches. Like, you know, people, it's very common, get mad at their spouse and the rings go flying. It's a very <laughs> common situation. I spent 21 hours two weeks ago looking for a ring a a young man threw off the patio into the bushes and uh, I still haven't found it and we're kind of uh, dumbfounded about it because I spent 21 hours that's a long time it's three days back and forth looking I've grid searched the whole area I just cannot locate it so we're thinking maybe a squirrel Um, or we had like well do we get mad to get super super uh, human strength and it could go way farther it could have made it to the road somebody may have found it but yeah, you get situations like that. Um, that's a very common one. Uh, other ways are, you know, people losing rings at beaches, parks, lakes, yards. Gardening's a very common one. But uh, and I believe now with COVID, we're going to see a lot of people losing their rings in the garbage when they're pulling their gloves off, uh, plastic gloves. And that's what I tell my husband. I don't have my rings on because I'm gardening. And you know, yeah, whatever. All right, Chris, thank you very much. Um, it was nice sharing time with you in these stories. And uh, best of luck to you. I have a feeling you're going to get busy. Thank you very much, and thank you for you know sharing this with your your uh, listeners, um, viewers. Uh, thank you for for taking the time to talk to me, and have a great day. You as well. That is Chris Turner of Ring Finders. They are across Canada. So uh, if your ring comes off, now you've got someone to call before you uh, head to the wife or the husband and admit it's gone. Maybe it can turn up. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 right through 10 here. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.